This is the Bema Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we begin to examine the letter of Hebrews and learn from its potential context, hearing the call for us to be people who suffer well and persevere in the faith and struggle authored by Jesus himself. Yeah. Hebrews is going to be another one of those books that in the scope of our podcast, our episodes here, our series, if you will, it's kind of tricky to figure out how to do it. It's kind of like Leviticus back in session one. You can either do it verse by verse, or you can take the 10,000 foot view. Like we could go through uh, Hebrews in its entirety, like we did Galatians and Romans, but that might be slightly overdone. It's one of my favorite letters. Um, I feel like I'm saying that with every New Testament letter. Uh, Hebrews is so good. It is, it is good. I wish it, it was good. one of the ones we we're doing verse by verse because yeah. it's just a gold mine. And I was tempted. I, d- I really was when we, when we kind of drafted everything out and I'm still tempted today. It's one of my favorite books, but I think uh, I may actually hurt my own purposes for the overall podcast if I do that. So instead, uh, I, we're, we're going to point you, bef- before we're done here, um, we're going to do one more episode on Hebrews next week. And before we're done here uh, in this episode, we're going to have pointed you in a few directions and a lot more directions in the next episode. And, and you'll have plenty of work that you can do on your own, uh, which I really, really encourage you to do. But we're going to do just enough here today. Session one reference. So first, the context of Hebrews is debated, but recent scholarship is changing our assumptions. Uh, Scholarship used to believe that Hebrews was written before the destruction of the temple, which would have been AD 70. And most of the reasoning for this was the way that the book discusses the temple and the Levitical priesthood in the present tense. Like the book doesn't talk about the temple that used to be standing. The book talks about the temple present tense. It doesn't talk about a Levitical priesthood that used to be. You remember the priests. It talks about the priests today. And so that present tense wording always made people think, well, the temple's still standing. But but as we've gotten a closer look at the book, especially in recent scholarship, as we learn more and more about first century Judaism and how it works, this is starting to be questioned. And one of my favorite theories is that the book is actually a, a sermon, a homily, and, and I say that because it's literally a phrase I'll show you before we're done with the episode today. There's actually a phrase at the end of the book of, of Hebrews. It's uh, used in the Greek, a word of encouragement, I believe, is the phrase we're going to look at. And that phrase is only used in Greek. It's only been used to speak of a sermon, of a homily that's used in a, particularly in a synagogue service. And so um, one of my favorite theories is that this book of Hebrews is actually a sermon, a homily written for a synagogue, written after the destruction of the temple to be circulated among the synagogues as a homily addressing a, 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 what Judaism looks like without the temple from a Jesus perspective. Because once the temple is destroyed, Judaism has to figure out what they're going to do because Judaism up to that point had always been about that that central, the building, the temple is the central, the Levitical priesthood, the cultic law we looked at earlier in this session. That was the cent- like that's the centrality of Judaism prior to the destruction of the temple. Once the temple is destroyed, Judaism changes radically. Now, for the most part, except for some really like fringe kind of radical fanatical views of Judaism, like Judaism made the same migration, even without the Jesus piece. Judaism said, listen, the temple's kind of, we learned what we needed to learn from the temple, but it's kind of an old outdated system. And we have a new system of worship. We have a new system. And that worship is our own righteousness. That worship is our obedience. That worship is our devotion. We now know how to love God through obeying Torah, 
and 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 being Jewish and 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 following Torah is is kind of what replaces the temple for Judaism. The writer of Hebrews is making almost the exact same case, but the writer writer of Hebrews is making the case using Jesus, uh, essentially saying that same lesson has been learned, but it's been learned in Christ, and in Christ we now no longer have that same need for a temple. One scholar even suggested that this homily was read, like there's a holiday, there's a solemn day of assembly in Judaism that remembers the destruction of the temple. And one scholar's theory is that this book was actually written to be read every year on that holiday as you're remembering the destruction of the temple in synagogue. So the context of Hebrews is debated, but I personally believe it was written as a response to the destruction of the temple. That would be how I would summarize that first point. Second is the author of Hebrews is unknown and also still debated. While ancient church tradition credited Paul with the writing of Hebrews, that is all but completely rejected by modern scholarship. And I would totally agree. There's no chance in my mind uh, that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Whoever the author is, they are incredibly fluent in Greek. They are Alexandrian in their thought, which is totally unique to the New Testament. So whoever wrote uh, Hebrews was trained in the school of Alexandria in Egypt. It has a much more Hellenistic, a much more Greek um, flavor to its Jewish, uh, to, 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 the, to the Greek itself and to the Jewish perspective. Uh, this person is also a second generation believer because of what it says. It actually refers to themselves as a second generation believer. Paul fits none of these criteria. However, other options emerge as great possibilities. Barnabas, Apollos, I actually wrote a paper in Bible college saying that Apollos was the author of Hebrews. Even Clement uh, of Alexandria are good ideas. Um, But my favorite opinion now has changed since Bible college, if you can imagine that, Brent. I didn't have the guts to write this in Bible college, but I would today. Uh, My my favorite uh, opinion is that the letter is written by by Priscilla. Um, And the fact that it is a woman is why the author doesn't name herself. Uh, This can be argued. Uh, There's a reference at the very end of the letter um, where the author refers to themselves and they use the masculine. But if they're trying to hide the fact, I just don't think that's a really good argument against a feminine author. Because if they're trying to kind of somewhat hide the fact that they're a feminine author, they're not going to make it obvious by using the feminine at the end and make it a big distracting point of the book if that's not what they're trying to accomplish. So that's my opinion. Third. The overarching theme of Hebrews seems to be that Jesus offers a clear version of everything the Jewish people understand. It's not that Jesus came and did something new at all. It's the same story from Genesis that we've been studying this whole podcast. Jesus is a better version of everything they held dear in the Levitical system. So it's, it's, I'm going to read that again. It's not that Jesus came and did something new But Jesus is a better version of everything they already hold dear in the Levitical system. Now, it's very tricky to talk about Hebrews and not unintentionally be anti-Semitic, not intentionally come across as very offensive. Because you have to remember the book of Hebrews was written by what kind of an author, Brent? Well, a Greek author. Yes, but Greek from what kind of an author? Well, they are a Greek. They're Hellenistic, but they are also very, very, very 
Are you looking for Jewish? Yes, Jewish. Right, absolutely. So they're a very Jewish author, and they're writing to a very, especially if this is a synagogue homily, a very, very Jewish context. So this conversation about the supremacy of Jesus, if you will, is coming from a Jew to other Jews. And that that conversation fits. When Gentiles take the book of Hebrews and start slinging around the idea of the supremacy of Jesus, it gets to be very tricky. It's not that it's incorrect. It's just that it's very tricky to not come across as very um, supersessionist, if you will. There's a Google that word. You didn't say Greek author either. You said well-versed in Greek. Well-versed in, the in language. Greek, yes. And, and there are Greek Jews. There are what's called Hellenistic Jews, and the school of Alexandria is the school of Hellenistic Judaism. So it's a very good point to clear up there. So yes, they are both Hellenistic, they're both Greek in their thinking, and Jewish in their identity. That's an Alexandrian-trained Jew. So the Torah was great and a wonderful gift from God, but Jesus takes Torah and makes it even better and more clear, interpreting it through his own flesh and blood, his life, his incarnation. Moses was an amazing leader, but Jesus was everything that Moses was, and then some. The high priest is an incredible thing to have, but Jesus is the best high priest you could ever imagine. Time and time again, the author keeps saying that what they have experienced in God's Levitical way was a wonderful thing. But now that it has been destroyed, they need not fret because Jesus has given them something even better. I should point out, uh, we did an 11-week exegetical Lenten series on this years ago, and uh, Brent's going to link that in the show notes. We did that here at Real Life on the Palouse, the church that I've belonged to here for the last decade. And uh, you can get that series there if you click on that. Um, And you can just kind of watch. I think I only do actually one of the sermons in that series. I was over at another campus. For almost all of those series, I might I might have done two, but uh, mostly you'll see the rest of our team there. You'll see uh, Aaron and Paul. Uh, you might even see Derek in that series. So um, you, you'll watch some of our other team preaching there. But if you want to like kind of go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, passage by passage, uh, you could watch that series and, and dive right in and enjoy. Looks like two messages from you, the opening one and then uh, week 10 of 11. Yeah, I'll tell you, that was a fun, like, I feel like that was when the preaching team, we were banging on all cylinders for that series. That was a great series. Like we were... All of our voices were coming together, and it was challenging, and it was we were mixing it up, and, and we were wrestling together as a teaching team. That was just a fun, man, that was a fun series. One of my most favorite series that we did at Real Life is that one. So feel free to dive in some more there. Let's see. Let's go uh, fourth. Fourth point. Speaking of overarching themes, the book of Hebrews contains an incredible use of an ancient Greek literary tool. We've talked about literary tools before. Brent? literary tools are things like? Like a chiasm. Like a chiasm. Now, the book of Hebrews has another literary tool, uh, and it's called an inclusio. An inclusio is a Greek literary tool. And it is not the same thing as a chiasm, although the two often do work together. We mentioned this idea, uh, the the last episode of our, our little Romans miniseries. Episode uh, 155. Perfect. And a great example. Thank you for bringing that up, Brent. Because that inclusio also happened to serve, we said, as a chiasm. The the argument within the inclusio was a chiasm. They are not the same thing. There were two literary tools being employed in the book of Romans. 
The inclusio is a literary bracketing. It's a bracketing tool to identify an argument within a piece of Greek literature. In some ways, it functions similarly to a chiasm, uh, but it's without the elements of an inverted parallelism. So an inclusio doesn't have to have any parallelism in it. It doesn't have to have any inverted nature to the inclusio. There doesn't have to be side A and side B. There's no mirror down the middle. There's no center to an inclusio unless the inclusio also happens to be a chiasm like it was in Romans. Uh, we're going to go through a huge infographic to show you this uh, here before we're done with our episode here. But and maybe don't open the infographic yet. Yeah, don't do that yet. You'll have like, you'll freak out. As soon as you open it, you're <laughs> you're just going to be staring at it for like an hour. Uh, so so let us get through the episode and then you can look at it and yes. like, okay, and then yeah. you can dig it. Like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to look at it together. It's an amazing piece, <laughs> but you're going to want to look at it for a long time. That's right. So, so there's an inclusio that's taking place, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, but finally, the dominant theme that seems to serve as the thrust of the exhortation of Hebrews is the idea of perseverance. All throughout the homily, the author insists that Jesus knew what it meant to suffer. He was glorified in his suffering, and he showed us how to suffer so God could also bring many sons to glory through our perseverance. The call repeats itself numerous times throughout the book, finally culminating in the passage of Hebrews 11, what do we call Hebrews 11, Brent? The Hall of Faith. The Hall of Faith, where the author lists these great heroes of the faith who show us what it means to follow God faithfully. The author will say that since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, those great heroes of the faith, as well as the great heroes of your faith who have gone before you, we need to run the race of perseverance with perseverance. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture. It's one of my favorite lessons. Uh, In fact, I do this lesson in Turkey, which is why I'm not going to talk about it here on the podcast. You have to come hear it in person because it's one of my, I would put it on my top five favorite moments in all of my Israel and Turkey trips. It's a pretty good one. Did you enjoy that? Very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. It's good. It's good. You got to come. Got to come experience that one if you want to see it. It's going to be one of the tricks I keep hidden up my sleeve right there. But all right, let's let's go ahead and, and, and go ahead and click. If you're in a spot where you're you're looking at your show notes, go ahead and click open to that infographic because if you look at this, this infographic, it's going to just, it's, this is one of my favorite, one of my favorite infographics I have ever seen anywhere. Blows my mind. I love it. It was made by one of our friends who was on the teaching team there. You'll see him in that series. His name is Paul Patterson, and he created this infographic for us, and it was it's just it's absolutely phenomenal. So the first thing I want to look at, I want to look at all kinds of things. I'm just going to geek out for like who knows how many minutes before we're done. But the first thing I want to show you is the inclusio. So the inclusio is the first row of boxes that you see towards the top of that infographic. You'll notice the brackets of the inclusio, similar to the bookends of a chiasm, are uh, uh, the same phrase. There's a phrase at the beginning. Brent, go ahead and read us uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You can already start to hear this Alexandrian Greek, like you're getting lost in all the poetry, this beautiful flowing Greek saying there's so much packed into every single sentence. And yet if you, if you listen to this, there is that phrase, he sat down at the right 
hand of God. And then later in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, can you give us chapter 10, verse 12, Brent? The same phrase is going to show up here in Hebrews 10, verse 12, the exact same phrase lifted right out of the Greek. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Right. There's that same phrase. He sat down at the right hand of God. In that context, it's stunning. The usage there is stunning. We may talk about it today or tomorrow, not tomorrow, the next uh, episode that we have. We may talk about it then. Uh, We'll see what we get to. But he sat down at the right hand of God, serve as the brackets to this inclusio. So what that does is the author is now alerting you. Once you see that it's an inclusio, you've caught wind of the author saying, there is an argument contained within these brackets that you need to look very closely. You need to see the argument that I'm making, because once you understand this argument, we're going to be able to close out the letter. But you need to understand this argument first before you deal with Hebrews 11, 12, and 13, or you're going to miss kind of the greater point that the author is making and just kind of get lost in the details of Hebrews 11, 12, and 13. So in Hebrews 1 through 10, there's this massive inclusio, and there's all kinds of themes here. You'll notice on the infographic, if you look at those kind of like teal boxes, every single one of those teal boxes is the use of the term therefore. Paul noticed the repeated use of therefore, 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 therefore. And so there are all these unique statements, propositions made about who Jesus is. First of all, Jesus is a better messenger. Therefore, Jesus is a better, offers us a better humanity. Therefore, Jesus was a better Moses. Therefore, this introduces us to a better Sabbath which therefore means that we have a better high priest. There's this building argument that the author is making here. And speaking of that high priest, and you'll notice, like if you just pay attention, I'm not going to do every single detail of this infographic, but it's so freaking cool. Like if you notice the little red dotted lines and then like there's black dotted lines, there's yellow dotted lines, it's connecting themes. You're going to see how these themes get woven intentionally by the author through the letter. And it's just so beautiful. And so the first half of this inclusio kind of at, at chapter five there kind of culminates with this idea of Jesus being a better high priest. Now, let's let's follow this idea. If you go down to the bottom there, you're going to see that red ribbon on the infographic. Those are all the references to high priest in the book of Hebrews. Let's just read these. Uh, Brent, give us Hebrews 2.17. For this reason, he had to be made like them fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Okay, so one of the themes here is that Jesus is going to be made a high priest. He's going to be made a high priest, and he's going to be a merciful and faithful. Merciful and faithful. On that theme, you're going to actually be able to follow it through the infographics. Merciful and faithful high priest. Give me Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Our apostle and high priest. How about uh, chapter 4, verses 14 and 15? Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Beautiful. How about uh, chapter 5? We got uh, verse 1, verse 5, verse 10. Give us those three verses. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, 
to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. And then down in verse 10, uh, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. All right. So one of the issues is how Jesus can't be a high priest. He's not a Levite. Only a Levite can. And this author, brilliantly, author of Hebrews, brilliantly calls back to a, 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 a previous priesthood, a priesthood that predates the Levitical priesthood. And, and some would say because it's Abraham's priests supersedes the Levitical priesthood. This priesthood is the priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. Go ahead and give us a 620. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Is that what you said? Yeah, you can say it all kinds of ways. You know, Melchizedek, Melchizedek. Yeah, all of it. It's all good. Uh, how about uh, how about seven one and then twenty six or twenty eight? This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Avraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. All right, how about uh, 8? Let's go 8, 1 through 3. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do not have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. All right, just more priesthood talk, how Jesus is serving as high priest and how Jesus relates to the high priest. Let's jump over to uh, chapter 9. I, th- I think I read that wrong. I think I said we do not have such a high priest, but we do have such a high priest. Oh, excellent. Glad you caught that. I'm, I'm, not sure that if, I'm not sure if I did, but I felt like I was I was like waiting for the waiting for the phrasing to turn around. I was like, what? <laughs> So I'm pretty sure, anyway, we do have such a high priest. We do. We do in Jesus. Let's jump over to chapter 9. We're going to look at verse 7, verse 11, and verse 29. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. All right, so I showed you all that just to show you how heavy this theme is. Oh, I didn't get verse 25. That's Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I cut you off. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Right. Excellent. Okay. So I, I show you all that just so you can see how heavy the theme of high priest, high priesthood, Jesus being the high priest, runs throughout the book and really just this inclusio specifically. Like this inclusio is making an argument about who Jesus is as a merciful and faithful, merciful and faithful. I'm going to say it again, merciful and faithful high priest. And so in this inclusio, if we go back to kind of watching this, uh, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is a better messenger. Jesus offers us, a, shows us a better humanity. Jesus is a better Moses. Jesus ends up becoming a better Sabbath. Because of all of this, Jesus is a better high priest because he is that merciful and faithful high priest. He's a high priest that can deal gently. He's merciful. 
He can sympathize. He's merciful, who has experienced our weakness. He's merciful, and he's also faithful. He's been made perfect. There's three things that Paul points out here on this infographic. Paul, our friend, not the Apostle Paul. Um, But uh, made perfect through suffering, this high priest in Jesus. Jesus, this high priest, was the source of eternal salvation. This Jesus, who is a high priest, is high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, And then... Uh, right at the end of chapter five there, there's this this phrase, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Kind of like a like a backhanded, like, remember Foreman talking about the lullaby effect? Like we become so used to what Judaism looks like. We become so used to how the temple functions. We become so used, to, we become dull of hearing. Therefore, chapter six, let us move beyond the elementary teachings. Let's move beyond the conventional wisdom. Let's move beyond what we always knew to be true. Let's move on to something better. Let's move on beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. And then watch what the end of the inclusio does. The end of the inclusio takes the three points that they made about the high priest and goes in reverse order is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, is a source of eternal salvation, and was made perfect through suffering, and ends up reversing that order and speaking about Jesus's priesthood. And I just, I just love that. So when you get that inclusio, when you understand the argument is about Jesus giving us a better way to live, and the reason that he gives us a better way to live is because this high priest knows what it's like to be us, knows what it's like to suffer, and he showed us how to suffer. So we know how to suffer. We know how to persevere. We know, re- re- realize that if the temple is just destroyed, you're dealing with this very reality. Judaism is suffering. And the author here is saying, well, I know somebody who suffered. Jesus suffered. And if we, if we understand that inclusio and see Jesus as our high priest, who offered a sacrifice once and for all time and sat down at the right hand of God, then the inclusio ends. Read us the ending of this inclusio, Brent. Give us uh, Hebrews 10, 19 through 39, and listen to this call for perseverance. Like This is the end of the inclusio. The author is transitioning us out of the inclusio into the conclusion. So they're wrapping up the argument and getting ready to propel us into the, therefore, how shall we live? moment. So go ahead and read us uh, 10, the end of 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? 
For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property, because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. So the author here says, because Jesus was faithful, we have to be faithful. Because Jesus persevered, we persevere. And we actually know, the author says, how to do this because we've suffered before. We, we have a story of suffering. We have a story of perseverance. So now in Christ, giving a, having been given a new perspective and a new humanity and a new rest and a new high priest, let's persevere all the more. If we've done it before, we can do it now with an even more, uh, an even better perspective. And then obviously the book ends with the hall of faith. From what you just read, Brent, the author is going to go on to say, And we actually have a whole bunch of people that have walked this path. They have persevered before us. What about this person and this person and this person? All of Hebrews 11. And all these people that didn't receive the promise. um, They they didn't get what was promised, but only together with us. And and therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, chapter 12, we have to run the race with perseverance. And then chapter 13 essentially is this, keep on loving. Don't give up. What What is the faithfulness? What is the faithfulness that matters? It's not eating kosher, although probably all the people that heard this letter are probably eating kosher. It's not wearing tassels and following Torah to the letter, although the people that heard this book of Hebrews probably did all that. What matters, the faithfulness that matters is this, and, and the book of Hebrews ends with this, let us go out beyond the city gates, finding those outsiders, finding those people on the fringes. And let us become that sacrifice for them. Because we've seen in Jesus how to be a priest, let us go be a priest to others. The faithfulness that matters is not just faithfulness to the rules, not just faithfulness to Torah, but faithfulness to the heart of God, which is loving others. And so you see how Hebrews functions. There is an inclusio where the author makes an argument about who Jesus is as high priest, what Jesus has done, what Jesus has gone through, and then what Jesus has done as high priest and as the sacrifice and as the new temple, all the things that Jesus has accomplished. And then after that, because of who Jesus is, this is how we ought to live, Hebrews 11, 12, and 13. So I love to geek out over that infographic. It's so, so good. Any thoughts on that before we close, Brent? Uh, no, I just I just hope that uh, listeners have a couple of hours to burn <laughs> on looking at the infographic and then reading the book of Hebrews after this. Uh, so good. It's it's so densely packed with just, I mean, yeah, the, the language is incredible. It's so much fun. And Absolutely. I, I think even after next week's episode, uh, you'll have even more fun. Absolutely. Speaking of next week's episode, we we can't quite move on from Hebrews yet. There's one more conversation I want to have before we move on from the book of Hebrews. Uh, There's one last seed I want to plant uh, before we keep moving. Uh, We've given you some leads in this 
uh, episode to some, follow up on. Some of the passages we read today uh, hinted at what is to come next week. That's right. That's right. Because uh, we need to talk about sacrifice. If Jesus was the high priest, if Jesus was the sacrifice, if Jesus was the temple, what do we do with sacrifice? And what do we do with atonement? Because atonement is a big idea. And we always talk about atonement for some reason with the book of Romans, but we went through the book of Romans. Brent, I believe verse by verse, correct? Certainly did. We didn't leave a verse of Romans out, right? Right. And uh, the book of Romans, how much of that talked about atonement? Like directly talked about atonement. I don't really remember talking about it very much. No, we didn't talk about it at all in the book of Romans, but yet we use it in Christian theology to talk about atonement because Romans is actually about, can you remember what topic, Brent? What is Romans actually about? Romans is about... Faithfulness. Uh, kind of, sort of. Uh, but the uh, word starts with J. Oh, justification. Yeah, justification. Like this is, Romans was about justification. Now in Christian theology, we have linked those two things. We've linked atonement and justification. Because, because of atonement, I am justified. But what I've tried to show us is that the first century Jewish world did not do that. The Apostle Paul did not link justification and atonement. And so we're doing that maybe mistakenly. We link justification to faith. Right. We, we put it all together. We put this mechanical process together that says, because I have faith in the work of Jesus and the atonement, I am therefore justified. And because of that, I'm saved. So faith and atonement leads to justification, which is why I have salvation, which is really, it's this beautiful systematic theology. It's maybe just not as biblical as we thought it was. It's maybe formulated centuries far later than the Bible authors. It's maybe not what the Bible authors are doing, which is why we took our time to go verse by verse through Romans, because Romans really isn't about atonement at all. And Jews didn't link the ideas. Justification is not the same conversation as atonement. Atonement has nothing to do with salvation in the Jewish world. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really doesn't. And so... What is the Bible doing? What is the Bible not doing? What is our New Testament doing? And how can we unlink some of these things uh, and quit mashing them all together in a systematic theology book? So that's where we're headed. We'll talk about atonement next week, and, uh, and then we'll head on from the book of Hebrews from there. Sound good? Sounds great. Excellent. All right. Uh, well, as, as you heard, we have more Hebrews to come, so hold your questions for now. Uh, but but uh, maybe spend the week reading through the book of Hebrews and studying the infographic. Uh, maybe watching or listening to the sermons that we link. And I think that should keep you busy for the next week, I think. It should. Should. All right, well, thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We will talk to you again soon.